For much of October 2001, the paper shredders at Arthur Anderson accounting firm ran around the clock. Their in-house lawyers felt they had no choice. There was literally tons of evidence which had to be destroyed. They knew the Securities and Exchange Commission was looking into Enron, which meant Arthur Anderson had weeks, perhaps only days, to eliminate all evidence of their crooked dealings with the energy company. The accounting firm had gone to great lengths to help Enron hide its toxic debt before, but now that their own necks were on the line, they really had to step up their game. Employees worked tirelessly to destroy documents, harder than they usually worked on legal projects. A shredding truck was parked outside the company's Houston office, while satellite locations in Portland, Chicago, and even London pitched in. Boxes and boxes of shredded paper piled up in the hallways, making it difficult to navigate the office. They were in a race against the clock. All traces of their guilt had to be erased before the government found out. For Enron's accountants, there was no rest for the wicked. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Today, we're closing out our discussion of the Enron scandal. Last week, we covered the shady origins of the Houston-based energy company under CEO Ken Lay. Though the company struggled to find its footing in the early days, under the leadership of COO Jeffrey Skilling, Enron experienced massive growth. By the late 1990s, it was America's seventh largest company. But Enron's success was all an illusion built on deceptive accounting practices and a ruthless corporate culture. This week, we'll explore how Enron brought disaster to the nation's most populous state, lost billions of dollars, and scrambled to hide that they were rotten to the core. We'll also cover how Enron finally fell and the price its corporate con artists ultimately had to pay. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. By the late 1990s, Enron's COO Jeffrey Skilling was the de facto leader of the massive energy company. CEO Ken Lay, who had founded Enron in 1985, was on cruise control, more interested in Washington hobnobbing than maintaining one of the country's largest conglomerates. Under Skilling, 
Enron claimed it was a logistics business focused on delivering power from plant to customer in the most efficient way possible. In truth, Enron was an energy company that cared very little about providing energy. Instead, it ran entirely on selling the idea of things. Instead of actually selling anything, they made bets with other providers about what the price of energy would be tomorrow. In keeping with this pie-in-the-sky mentality, Skilling didn't even bother to realistically analyze the company's business prospects for the coming year. Instead, he would look just at what earnings the company needed to post in order to keep their stock price up, then demand that his employees meet the bar. As the end of each quarter approached, Enron employees scrambled to reach that magic number. To succeed, they negotiated bad deals, which allowed them to post growth for the quarter, but cost them millions in the long term. They also revisited old contracts and readjusted their pricing models to be increasingly optimistic, again, generating growth in the short term, but setting themselves up for eventual disaster. Any losses were treated as a can to be kicked further on down the road. The undisputed mastermind of kicking the can down the road was Andy Fastow. Fastow, who was made CFO at the age of 36, was responsible for ensuring that the company hit its profit targets. Practically speaking, this meant hiding their debt and bad deals from investors. In the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, authors Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind quote a former employee who explains how Fastow manipulated Enron's accounts to deceive Wall Street. Say you have a dog, but you need to create a duck on the financial statements. Fortunately, there are specific accounting rules for what constitutes a duck. Yellow feet, white covering, orange beak. So you take the dog and paint its feet yellow and its fur white, and you paste an orange plastic beak on its nose. And then you say to your accounts, this is a duck. Don't you agree it's a duck? Everybody knows that it's a dog, not a duck. But that doesn't matter, because you've met the rules for calling it a duck. All the smoke and mirrors were intended to be temporary measures to cover up Enron's problems. Skilling believed that once he came up with his next big idea, it would launch Enron into the stratosphere and all the bad debt could be paid off. He called this elusive idea the Big Enchilada. Skilling's first bite at a Big Enchilada was to sell energy, particularly electricity, directly to homes and businesses. He created a new division to seize this opportunity, Enron Energy Services, or EES. Enron believed that the electricity market would be deregulated, as natural gas had been. In fact, the success of EES depended on deregulation. But electricity was much more tightly controlled than natural gas, and few states were interested in sacrificing that stability on the altar of the free market. With the deluded conviction of a zealot, CEO Ken Lay preached that electricity deregulation would help customers save billions. The way he saw it, these grateful customers would then flock to Enron for all of their home energy needs. Enron, in Lay's mind, would be national heroes. To this end, 
Enron lobbied Congress to pass a bill which would force states to deregulate the electricity market. Millions were spent on the push. In 1999, Enron's annual lobbying budget was more than $37 million. But the effort failed. Utilities fought off Enron's attempts at deregulation, and the vast majority of states stuck to their guns. However, one state did decide to embrace the free market. California. The state deregulated its electricity utilities in the late 90s, opening a door for Enron. Little did the state know that they were letting in corporate raiders. The state enacted a Byzantine set of laws in an attempt to both implement the free market while still protecting residents, businesses, and energy utilities. Enron immediately directed a full-time staff to pore over the rules in search of opportunities to exploit. One of the principal vulnerabilities Enron abused was that electrical transmission lines could become congested. When that happened, it would drive up the price of electricity as the state government scrambled to get electricity to homes and business, buying it from wherever they could, often at inflated prices. And there was no way to check if the congestion reflected actual demand from customers or if energy companies were manipulating the results. Which is exactly what Enron did. Among other tactics, they inflated projections for the amount of electricity that would be used so that EES could be paid to mitigate fake congestion. This would be a bit like a drug company selling medication for a made-up disease. Additionally, Enron sold reserve power that they didn't actually have, on the assumption that they would never be asked to supply it. But their most devious ploy by far was hoarding electricity. Enron would export power out of California when there was a surplus, then import it back when the state didn't have enough power and had to pay a much higher price. Like someone buying up all the toilet paper in a town and then, once people need it, selling it back at a huge markup. These hustles and others had codenames like Death Star, Fat Boy, Get Shorty, and Ricochet. Here's an example of one of the tactics in action. EES won a bid to supply Southern California with 2,900 megawatts of electricity during peak hours. Then, it intentionally chose to transmit that energy across a line that could only handle 15 megawatts at a time. To make up for the huge shortfall, the California government had to scramble to find alternate sources of electricity to power the city. And because of the short notice, the state had to pay inflated prices. In this instance, Enron drove up energy prices by 70%, costing users about $7 million. Average prices across the entire state climbed from $24 per megawatt hour to $750 per megawatt hour. Partly due to Enron's trickery, California declared 55 energy-related emergencies in the year 2000 and 70 in the year 2001. Rolling blackouts were implemented for the first time in 50 years, 
Small businesses that couldn't afford power were forced to close, while schools had to send students home. The U.S. Energy Secretary was forced to step in to avoid a statewide blackout. When called to account by the state's oversight agencies, Enron defended themselves by saying that they had done nothing wrong. It was the system that was wrong. Or, as authors Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind put it, Enron's argument was a little like an eight-year-old telling his parents that it was their fault he'd done something wrong because they weren't watching him closely enough. Finally, in June of 2001, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission set price caps, ending Enron's market manipulation. Prices went down, and the emergencies ended. By then, Enron had made hundreds of millions of dollars. Naturally, the EES employees responsible for Death Star and Fat Boy were given promotions and cash bonuses. Californians, though, were furious. And much of their ire was directed squarely at Enron. In response, Jeff Skilling denied any culpability and told Businessweek that Californians should actually be thanking Enron for trying to deregulate the market. This kind of deflection tactic is called moral credentialing. In a study titled Moral Credentialing and the Rationalization of Misconduct, the authors described the process as the act of establishing oneself as a virtuous or moral person. Case in point, Skilling asserting that not only should Enron not be punished, they should be thanked. Interestingly, the authors of the study go on to write that moral credentialing can actually facilitate selfish or ethically questionable behavior and free people to behave according to their darker impulses. In very simplified terms, when people view themselves as particularly good, they can actually end up doing more evil. This certainly seems to fit with the behavior of Enron executives like Jeff Skilling, by unequivocally claiming to be on a moral high ground, they implicitly gave themselves more leeway to act immorally and to thoroughly fleece Californians along the way. At other times, though, Enron executives were openly disdainful, not bothering with any kind of justification for their actions. The smartest guys in the room recounts a joke Skilling told at a conference in Las Vegas. You know what the difference is between the state of California and the Titanic? At least the lights were on when the Titanic went down. But while EES was successfully plundering California, another division of Enron was generating so much debt and bad press, it threatened to sink the whole company. Up next, we'll see how Rebecca Mark's multi-million dollar water company, Azurix, helped sink Enron. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. 
In the early 2000s, Enron's foray into the electricity market laid waste to California, bankrupting energy utilities and costing the state millions. Despite Enron's success in pillaging California, the company continued to hemorrhage money in other divisions. Whatever spoils they brought in were quickly wasted on the pursuit of big deals which, more often than not, turned out to be duds. Understandably, the company went to great lengths to hide these weaknesses from the world. Once, in 1998, Enron invited Wall Street analysts to visit the EES department on the sixth floor of their Houston headquarters. There, analysts witnessed dozens of employees bustling about, making calls and hammering away at keyboards in the pursuit of big trading deals. The analysts walked away impressed. But it was all an illusion. Skilling filled the sixth floor with employees from other floors most of them unaffiliated with EES, and told them to pretend to be busy. Secretaries masqueraded as traders, assistants put personal photos on empty desks to make them look lived in. According to McLean and Elkind, Skilling's little Potemkin village stood as the perfect metaphor for the company. So much of what outsiders were led to believe about the operation was at odds with what was really going on. Skilling's second big enchilada, after EES and the electricity market, was broadband. He hoped to put Enron on the cutting edge of technological development by embracing high-speed internet. This was in spite of the fact that Skilling didn't even know how to turn on his office computer. His secretary had to do it for him. Skilling was attracted to broadband because Wall Street was in the midst of the dot-com boom, when internet startups saw their stocks get wildly inflated. Skilling wanted in on the action. He also expected that internet bandwidth could be traded in the same way that Enron traded in natural gas or oil. As he had with EES, Skilling spent millions building out Enron broadband. In both cases, he rationalized that the massive investment would pay off sometime down the road. Keeping Enron afloat in the short term, however, demanded more and more of CFO Andy Fastow, the numbers whiz who helped them hide billions in bad debt. To keep up with Skilling's increasing demands, Fastow pushed for control of a private equity fund. It would function like a slush fund, open only to favored employees. In this way, Enron assets could be sold to the fund to raise money for the company and to hide debt. There was an obvious conflict of interest, though. As McLean and Elkind put it, when Enron wanted to sell an asset to the fund, Fastow would be in the position of negotiating it himself. Enron's accounting firm, Arthur Anderson LLP, plainly saw that this was a terrible idea. Any objective observer would feel the same way. Yet the Houston Energy Company was their biggest client, and Arthur Anderson didn't want to lose them. So the accountants kept their mouths shut, certain that Ken Lay and the board of directors would shut down such a ludicrous idea as Fastel running a private equity fund on Enron's behalf. They were wrong. To be blunt, 
the accountants underestimated how greedy and foolish Ken Lay and the board of directors were. The board voted unanimously to exempt Fastow from the company's code of ethics and allowed him authority over his pet private equity fund. As planned, Fastow exploited this position to raise money for the company and hide debt from investors. And since he was both Enron's CFO and in charge of the private equity fund, he always made sure that the deals between the two had a little something in it for him. Put plainly, Fastow lined his pockets with tens of millions of Enron's money. For a while, it worked. Harvard Business School wrote multiple case studies praising the Enron business model, and Fortune magazine named them the country's most innovative company six years in a row. According to McLean and Elkind, any remaining vestiges of skepticism were washed away in the torrent of praise that showered over the company and its top executives. Once enough people believed Enron was infallible, it just became the truth. Never mind that the company's reputation was built on nothing more than perception. Naturally, Enron worked very hard to protect that image. Or, to be more specific, they put their money to work for them. Enron paid upwards of $100 million per year in fees to investment banks. So, understandably, those establishments were motivated to keep Enron happy, to maintain the working relationship. Under these circumstances, the bank's investment analysts were pressured to constantly promote Enron's stock as a must-buy. These analysts were supposed to be objective and independent, as they worked for investment firms and not for Enron. However, they could be fired for failing to show blind deference to Enron and supreme leader Ken Lay. So they towed the company line. For all intents and purposes, Enron was untouchable. And the top brass knew it. The arrogance of Enron's leaders, particularly Lay and Skilling, trickled down to their employees and adversely affected the entire company's performance. Legal professor Lynn L. Dallas explored this very topic in a paper on the psychology of Enron's demise. In it, Dallas argues that Enron fostered a culture of arrogance, which was ultimately detrimental. According to Dallas, this kind of toxic environment silences dissenting voices, leading to group homogeneity, which can enhance the probability of unethical and or illegal behavior. In other words, Enron's institutionalized arrogance led to groupthink, which in turn led to bad choices. Ideally, external observers exist to discourage this sort of toxic culture. Credit rating agencies, for example, exist specifically to objectively monitor the strength of a company based on its ability to pay back debt. But when it came to Enron, not only did they fail to spot the company's instability, they actively contributed to its perception as infallible. The big three credit rating agencies, Moody's, S&P, and Fitch, consistently gave Enron an investment grade rating. 
These agencies give companies ratings, usually from AAA down to D, based on the ability of a company to pay off its corporate debt. If a company gets a rating of triple B minus or higher, then it is considered investment grade and safe to invest in. Not maintaining an investment grade can ruin a company. While Enron did work to actively hide its debt and make itself appear stronger than it was, the point of the credit ratings agencies is to investigate big companies and give an accurate assessment of their durability. In the case of Enron, they failed miserably. Since the credit rating agencies said it was safe to invest in Enron, people went ahead and did just that. In August 2000, Enron's stock was trading at $90 a share, and the company was worth nearly $70 billion. Not everyone at Enron was flourishing, however. Rebecca Marks' water utility company, Azurix, was flailing. She'd started the water arm of Enron with the intent to make it the global leader in the water industry. Never mind that two French companies, Vivendi and Suez Leones des Eaux, were established giants in the water game with over a century of experience. Mark, meanwhile, had zero experience and no clue as to how the water business worked. She assumed she could grow Azurix the same way she had grown Enron International by globetrotting and throwing together deals at a reckless pace. This time, though, she didn't have the power of Enron's finances to throw around. Once Enron got the new division off the ground, they refused to dump more money into Azurix. So Mark was on her own, trying to grow a cash-strapped startup. Despite these constraints, she gave herself a generous $700,000 salary. Her employees were similarly overcompensated. And just as she had at Enron International, Mark burned through millions on excessively optimistic deals that generated little revenue. Desperate to raise money, Mark decided to take the company public. She was told by her closest associates that the company was nowhere near ready to take that step. But Mark ignored them. To make the company attractive to potential investors, Azurix had to prove that it was a worthwhile investment. And to do that, it had to close a substantial deal. So Azurix bid $439 million to win a contract to provide water for Buenos Aires, Argentina. Their bid was three times higher than the closest contender. With this deal in hand, Azurix was able to go public, raising almost $700 million. Most of that influx went to paying down Azurix's debt, leaving the company with $300 million. The remaining amount was then used to pay for the Buenos Aires deal. Essentially, they were right back where they started. And things were about to get much worse. It soon became clear that the Argentinian deal was a raw one. Just updating the necessary infrastructure would cost $350 million. On top of that huge setback, Azurix couldn't find the necessary records to bill 40% of their new customers. And many recipients didn't even bother paying their bills. Instead, they turned to the Argentinian government for protection. 
After spending well over $400 million on the bid, Azurix was set to make a profit of less than $1 million a year. As a result of these less-than-stellar prospects, Azurix's stock price cratered. Five months after the company went public, its stock had fallen from $19 a share to less than eight. But Mark wasn't ready to give up yet. She had an idea to save Azurix, the same one Skilling tried with Enron Broadband. Turn it into an internet company. Why travel around the globe building water utilities when you could just sell water online? When Mark pitched her internet water idea to Wall Street, she was able to raise another $600 million. Unfortunately, though, it was all in junk bonds with a 10% interest rate, which Enron would ultimately be responsible for. And of that $600 million, all but $18 million was immediately used to pay down debt. That didn't raise the stock price or make Azurix profitable. Again, they were stuck right back where they started. In fact, an analysis by McKinsey and Company warned that Azurix was probably worth half of what it was trading at. Mark called an emergency meeting and tasked her employees with finding a way to raise their stock. Realizing the hopelessness of their situation, one employee told Mark that Azurix's stock price would rise when pigs fly. As quoted in The Smartest Guys in the Room, Mark said in response, I grew up in Missouri on a pig farm and I know a lot about pigs. And I'm here to tell you, sometimes pigs do fly. But in Azurix's case, they didn't. In August of 2000, Rebecca Mark resigned from Azurix. Heartbreaking as it must have been at the time, it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to her. She sold all of her Enron shares for some $80 million. Had she stayed at the company, her options would have been worthless. Azurix, the company she left behind, was $2 billion in debt, which Enron was now responsible for. Enron couldn't have known it at the time, but Azurix turned out to be something of a dress rehearsal for the parent company's downfall. Many of the same themes would repeat themselves. Leadership that believed they could solve problems by throwing money at them. A culture poisoned by hubris taking on new debt in order to pay off existing debt, an obsessive fixation on raising stock price in lieu of customer service. And because the failure of Azurix was very public, it caused many to take a second look at Enron and wonder if the company was really as strong as it said it was. Up next, we'll explore Enron's sudden dramatic collapse. Now, back to the story. In February of 2001, Jeff Skilling formally took over as CEO of Enron. In practice, though, he'd been running the company for years. Ken Lay, despite drawing a multi-million dollar CEO salary, spent his workdays shopping for private jets and decorating his various homes. 
Skilling's first move as CEO was announcing that Enron would no longer be content with being the world's leading energy company, but would now aim to become the world's leading company. That same month, Enron's accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, held a meeting to decide whether or not to keep Enron as a client. They were well aware of the various frauds, deceptions, and book cookings going on, but they also collected as much as $100 million per year in fees if they stayed in business with Enron, which is exactly what they decided to do. But the times were a-changing. The dot-com bubble finally burst, and investors lost billions on overhyped, overvalued internet companies. During the heady days of the bubble, no one really cared what was going on behind closed doors because everyone was making money. Now, though, people started asking questions about all of their investments. This was a very bad time for Enron to have added scrutiny on them, as they were still reeling from the failures of Azurix and Enron Broadband. And then, of course, there was all that fuss about the electricity struggles in California. All of this together forced investors to take a closer look at Enron and wonder if the company might be assessed too highly. Various short sellers, investors who bet against a certain company, investigated Enron and determined that the company's worth was exaggerated. The writing was on the wall for those willing to look. Enron generated little cash, and it had billions of dollars in debt. From that point, Enron's decline happened slowly, then all at once. In March, the month after Skilling became CEO, Fortune magazine ran an article titled, Is Enron Overpriced? As March drew to a close, its stock price dropped from $79 at the start of 2001 to $58. In April, during a conference call following Enron's first quarter earnings release, a short seller asked to see a balance sheet. Skilling demurred. The short seller noted that Enron was the only financial institute unable or unwilling to provide a balance sheet with their earnings release. Skilling responded by calling him an a-hole. Lay was horrified. The company's public relation team begged Skilling to apologize immediately. He ignored them. Skilling was starting to crack under the pressure. Enron's CEO regularly showed up to work unkempt and unshaven. He spent his free time smoking cigarettes and drinking white wine by himself in Houston bars. Rumor had it that he was suffering from depression. In August, Skilling announced that he was resigning as CEO of Enron just six months after accepting the position. His only explanation was that he was quitting for personal reasons. In truth, he just couldn't handle the stock price dropping and had no ideas for how to turn it around. Lay announced that he would be taking over as CEO again. Enron's stock continued to drop. Meanwhile, an Enron vice president named Sharon Watkins poured over company assets to determine what could be dumped for some quick cash. Far from finding any viable solutions, all she discovered was accounting fraud on an unprecedented scale. Realizing that Enron was doomed, 
she quickly began interviewing with other companies. Before she left, however, she wrote a seven-page letter to Ken Lay detailing the extent of Enron's double-dealing and warning him that it would all soon be brought to light. She advised him to clean up the company as soon and as quietly as possible before someone in the media or the government blew the whistle. Lay waved off her concerns. Watkins was one of the few individuals at Enron who swam against the current and urged the company to act responsibly. It is a rare thing for someone to speak out against their own institution. According to a study performed by Kenneth Butterfield, research suggests that, in organizational contexts, ethical decision-making is very much a social process. Butterfield goes on to write that, if a decision-maker perceives that others in the social environment will see an issue as ethically problematic, she or he will be more likely to consider the ethical issues involved. In other words, people tend to align their moral compasses with those of the organizations to which they belong. By this same logic, when honest or moral people are indoctrinated into an unethical system, they will tend to support that system and act unethically. When leaders, like a CEO or other executives, do not seriously tackle ethical dilemmas, it is extremely unlikely that their employees will do so. However, those outside of the Enron system had no qualms about probing the company's ethics, or lack thereof. Reporters circled like sharks, asking uncomfortable questions about Enron's relationship with Andy Fastow's private equity fund. In response, the company leadership pretended that everything was just fine. Lay reassured his employees that the company was back on track and urged them to purchase and talk up Enron stock. While his employees lost $2 billion doubling down as directed, Lay secretly dumped his own shares in the company and collected tens of millions. In October of 2001, Enron had no choice but to report a $1 billion loss, which it attempted to downplay by calling it a non-recurring charge. Immediately afterward, the Wall Street Journal published a story raking Enron over the coals for its relationship with Fastow's private equity fund. Fastow's own brother read the article and then emailed Andy, saying that he knew there was no way it could be true, because if Andy had really made millions off the private equity scheme, he never would have allowed his brother to keep driving a seven-year-old Toyota Camry. Other responses to the Wall Street Journal article were far more serious. The SEC began an informal inquiry into Enron, while the company's stock price continued to plummet. Even his own employees started to turn against Lay, asking scathing questions about how bad the private equity scheme was and how much Fastow had pocketed. Flabbergasted by the decisions of Enron executives, one employee even asked Lay if he was smoking crack. CFO Andy Fastow had long avoided telling anyone, even at Enron, just how much he had rewarded himself through the private equity dealings. When Enron's chairman of the board compensation committee finally pressed Fastow to come clean, the CFO admitted 
to taking $45 million. In truth, the amount was closer to $60 million. The next day, Fastow was placed on a leave of absence. Arthur Addison's in-house lawyer, Nancy Temple, knew that if Enron went down, it could take the once venerable accounting firm with it. So she advised her bosses to shred any and all documents that might look bad in court. Arthur Anderson's shredding machines screeched and whirred around the clock, producing bags and bags of paper ribbons. More than a metric ton of paper was shredded, while nearly 30,000 emails were deleted. The shredding only ended when the SEC formally served Arthur Anderson with a subpoena. The commission also turned its formal inquiry of Enron into a formal investigation. Stock plummeted to less than $10 a share. Moody's downgraded Enron's credit rating to just one level above junk status. For one brief, shining moment, it seemed like Enron might be saved. Dynegy Incorporated, a longtime rival of Enron, agreed to acquire the floundering company and save everyone's bacon. But then, in November, the results of an internal investigation were announced. Enron had some $9 billion in debt it would have to pay off by 2002. Their total debt was closer to $38 billion. Shocked and bewildered at just how diseased Enron truly was, Dynegy soon backed out of the acquisition. Enron's credit rating was downgraded to junk status. Share prices dropped to less than a dollar. On Sunday, December 2nd, 2001, Enron filed for bankruptcy. It was the largest corporate bankruptcy in American history at that point. If Enron executives were concerned about that, it sure didn't appear that way. They flew to New York for a bankruptcy court hearing on a $45 million corporate jet and stayed in a Four Seasons hotel suite. Arthur Anderson and the securities analysts blamed Enron. Enron and the banks blamed Arthur Anderson. In the words of authors Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind, no matter who you asked, it was always somebody else's fault. Once the SEC dug into Enron's accounts, their deceptions were exposed to the world. The consequences were far-reaching. Arthur Anderson was found guilty of destroying evidence. However, due to a flawed jury instruction, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction. Technically, Arthur Anderson was found not guilty. But practically, where once there were the big five accounting firms, now there is the big four. The banks, which had enabled Enron's toxic practices and profited from the deception, paid a few million bucks to the SEC and went right back to business as usual. 25 Enron executives were charged, along with eight others. Andy Fastow pled guilty and was sentenced to six years in prison. Lay and Skilling refused to admit that they had done anything wrong. Ken Lay was found guilty on 10 charges, but died of a heart attack a few months before his sentencing. 
Jeff Skilling was fined $45 million and sentenced to 24 years in prison. He served 12. As of 2020, he is looking for investors in a new energy marketplace. So far, no one seems interested. What was left of Enron was steadily carved up and sold for parts. Five years after filing for bankruptcy, the company was completely dissolved. In 2002, Congress passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to protect investors by improving the accuracy of corporate disclosures. The legislation was a direct response to Enron and similar corporate accounting scandals of the time. The effectiveness of such regulation is debatable. The global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 was partly driven by the same sort of unethical corporate behavior that fueled Enron. And unlike at Enron, very few executives were punished for their role in perpetuating those schemes. Some degree of regulation is necessary to help pluck the bad apples out of the barrel. But as long as people hope to get rich quick, someone will come along to trick them into thinking they can. We'll leave the last word to Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind, authors of the definitive book on the subject. The larger message of the Enron scandal was that the wealth and power enjoyed by those at the top of the heap in corporate America demand no sense of broader responsibility. To accept those arguments is to embrace the notion that ethical behavior requires nothing more than avoiding the explicitly illegal, that refusing to see the bad things happening in front of you makes you innocent, and that telling the truth is the same thing as making sure that no one can prove you lied. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Enron, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artists was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Hold up. 